Genesis chapter 21, briefly, and then 22 for a long time, uh, today and until we finish it. End of last week, uh, at Sarah's request and at God's confirmation, Hagar and her son, we know as Ishmael, were sent away. So Abraham is left with his wife, many years, Sarah, and with his son, the child of God's promise, Isaac. So in this last section of Genesis 21, starting in verse 22, Abraham moves on from his previous difficulties and sadnesses and enjoys what probably are several years, we don't know how long, but several years of raising and enjoying Isaac exclusive fatherly affection for his son. And in addition to that, he makes a peace treaty or a covenant uh, with King Abimelech, uh, even though they had a rocky start to their relationship a few chapters before. And he gets rights to a well of water for himself and for his livestock, which is important in this wilderness. So Abraham settles in Beersheba. He plants a large shade tree and he worships his God. Calling on, as we see, verse 33, there he called on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Good days filled with good relationships and worshiping his good God. We all wish that's just the way that the story of our lives play out. Good relationships, filled with good days, worshiping our good God. Little did he know what was coming. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. That's an important word for us to stop on, so we're going to. God tested Abraham. What does test mean? Um, for those of you who missed school this week, I wonder if you missed any tests uh, for which you rejoiced and maybe you dread the thought of not more snow coming tomorrow. If you were homeschooled, I don't know if you guys took a snow day or not. We kind of took a snow week. Kids couldn't get to school. They lived there, but whatever. What does a test mean? Well, a teacher gives a test to her students to see what they learned in a subject. Maybe you learned a lot. The test is a good thing. Maybe you didn't learn a lot. Test is a bad thing. A scientist may conduct an experiment to test his hypothesis and see if it is valid or not. As a dad, it's my job to pack and load things. Now, the Bible doesn't say that that has to be how it is. It is in our household, and I think it's in many households. Sometimes that means tying things down or strapping them in place, like when I load our kayak onto the roof of our van and strap it down. And once I've tightened all the ratchet straps, I might try to wiggle the kayak to make sure it's secure. Why do I do that? Well, I know that the movement of the van and the wind, the turns while driving on the interstate could make the kayak shift. One time in our old van, I had strapped everything down and we were driving uh, uphill as we came south on 77 and I looked behind me to see a large container filled with suitcases and sleeping bags fall off the back of our van, bounce off of our bicycles, just travel down the road. Apparently it wasn't tested well enough. So I, I shift the kayak. I want to test it before driving to make sure it won't fall off. And then according to the immutable laws of man slash fatherhood, I pronounce the sacred blessing. Do you know what the sacred blessing is? That's not going anywhere. Praise God for you, Aaron. That's not going anywhere. I test it to make sure, spiritually speaking, for God to test someone means to place them into a situation that will reveal their heart. To place them in a situation that will reveal who they trust, what they love. So God places a difficulty of some sort in their path to see how they will respond. And sometimes it is a suffering that must be endured. Other times it is a command that must be obeyed. A synonym for testing in the Bible is trying or trials. Not like I'm trying to do something, but God trying something or putting someone through a trial. And a number of times, God uses the illustration of purifying gold 
or silver, another precious metal, to show what these tests or trials accomplish. I looked it up. I've never tried to purify gold, not like I have a lot of gold sitting around. Uh, But one of the oldest ways of purifying precious metals like this is to place them in a crucible and heat it to almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And as the gold melts, any impurities mixed in with the gold could rise to the surface, surface and could be scraped off. So the heat of the test reveals any imperfections or impurities that need to be removed. The heat of the test reveals imperfections. And that's what God's tests do for our hearts. It doesn't put imperfections in. It shows the imperfections that are already there. That's what a test is for. Is there any difference between uh, this and tempting or temptations? Absolutely. It's a vast difference. If a test is like heat that reveals an obedient or disobedient heart, a temptation is more like bait on a hook, luring people toward danger. Heat Versus a hook. That's very different, isn't it? The Bible is clear. God never tempts anyone to sin. He is not dangling a hook of damnation in front of you with a worm of sin trying to get you to disobey him. That's contrary to his character. God's not tempted like that, and he tempts no one else. James chapter 1 says that. God is not here tempting Abraham to sin. He's not playing a trick on Abraham trying to get him to disobey. It's important for us to grasp that about the character of God. For trying to get Abraham to disobey or trying to get us to disobey would be contrary to God's character. God never acts against his own righteousness. But God is testing Abraham. Across the decades that we've seen Abraham, there are times of extraordinary faith, are there not? And there are times of astounding unbelief, are there not? So after the greatest fulfillment of God's promise, the birth of Isaac, what is in Abraham's heart? Many other times we thought Abraham had kind of crossed the Rubicon. We thought that he had had gotten over those burdens and he was just coasting in righteousness and then he proves us wrong. So is that different? Like what's happened now? All of that waiting, all of that fulfillment, even all the difficulty, Ishmael gone, all these things. Now what's in Abraham's heart? God's going to prove what is in Abraham's heart. And he's going to do so by majorly turning up the heat in Abraham's life so that Abraham's heart will be revealed. And this test comes in the form of a request. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, take your son. All right, let's pause again. Do you remember back in Genesis 13, verse 14? That's the story of Abraham and Lot arriving and divvying up the land. And Abraham defers to his nephew. And after his nephew Lot chose the watered plains of the Jordan River Valley, the well-watered areas for all of those livestock, and Abraham's kind of left with, Sand, I guess. God spoke to Abraham and said, Lift up your eyes and look from, where the pl- from the place where you are, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. A restatement of this promise that God had been making before. This doesn't change anything, Abraham. This is all still yours, even what Lot is living in now. And regarding God's phrasing there in that sermon, I don't remember when it was, but I said this. Something that's really easy to miss here in Genesis 13, 14, is that that verse is less of a command, lift up your eyes. Not saying, hey, get your eyes up, Abraham. It's not the tone communicated in the text. It's less of a command, more of a request. At least one commentator went so, goes so far as to encourage translating what God said back there in Genesis 13 as kind of, Abraham, please lift up your eyes. There are only four occasions in the Old Testament when God words something like this. God isn't begging Abraham to do anything, of course, but he is making a very personal request 
to encourage and strengthen Abram's faith. That's what happens in chapter 13. And here in chapter 22, verse 2, we have another instance of that same phrasing with the verb take. You could see this as an imperative, right? Hey, this is what you have to do. That's not really the wording, though. It has that sense of that please take. Again, not God on his knees begging, but he's making a request. And he's making, he's about to ask Abraham to do something staggering, something that defies rational explanation, defies understanding. It's an extraordinary request that is coming. After all, God had done for Abraham, after all God had done for Abraham over so many decades, what request could God possibly make that Abraham would refuse? It's kind of like with the kings be like, ask me anything up to half my kingdom. I just wish one person would be like, well, I want half your kingdom then. Nobody ever does that. Maybe they don't mean it. But Abraham's like, God, with all you've done for me, ask me anything, I will gladly obey. God starts to build the request. Again, verse 2, God has said, take your son. Like, well, he can't take Ishmael. Ishmael's gone. So it's obvious. Well, it's, okay, I, my son. Yep, only have one. Your only son, Isaac. Right. I, I understood. You know, that son whom you love. Okay. Do, you, do you hear an intensification here? Take your son. Yeah, your only son. Your beloved son. And go to the land of Moriah. You know, go is the same command that God gave to Abraham back in chapter 12, verse 1. The first thing that we know of Abraham hearing from God is the command to go. Go from your people, from your father's house, right? There's a threefold intensification there. I don't remember how it's worded exactly. Let's see if I have that. Go from your country. What you know is familiar. Go from your kindred, who you know is familiar. Go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. One author wrote that the first go back in chapter 12 cut Abraham off from his past. And the second go cuts Abraham off from his future. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what God is asking Abraham to do. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's not mince words here. God is telling Abraham to kill Isaac and then burn his body to ashes. A whole burnt offering. Burn him till his corpse is gone. It's a staggering request, no matter how you look at it. I mean, first, a loving dad's revulsion against killing his own and only son. You have six kids. You can't just be like, well, kill one of the girls. I'd be like, well, I have four others after that. Like, no, no, it's not going to happen. It's not like, oh, there's more. There's more where that came from. It's fine. My joke about having extra, I don't mean it. It's just unthinkable. Kill your child. And second, Isaac wasn't just Abraham's son. He was the son of God's promise. Through Isaac, God's promised blessing would come to Abraham's family and to the nations. This request doesn't make sense. Cut off your own line. End the promise. What? And then third, and this is where often people may get hung up. They may be like, well, not the dad thing and not the promise thing, but human sacrifice? God had forbidden, forbidden the killing of other humans made in his image. Very early, right? Humanity made in my image, special place. And said, if you, whoever kills man by man, shall they be killed, right? There weren't, there weren't exceptions to this. That becomes even clearer in the law and the prophets. Human, accept, human, human sacrifices were no exception to this forbidding of killing image bearers. No exception to that. I mean, the godless, wicked Canaanites practiced human sacrifice. They offered their infant sons to the false god, Molech. The the statue with open hands 
and an open belly with a fire burning inside so they could take their sons, place them in their hands, and then roll them down into a fire to be consumed. That was a despicable, abominable practice, satanic practice, that made the land filthy to where God says, I'm going to spew them out. And the worship of Baal also included this atrocity. When confronting the Israelites about his people through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, this is what they have done. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. The prophet Micah spoke of this same practice, this, this intensification. I think it's Micah chapter 6. So with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Uh, shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, like Solomon would have offered, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give the, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer, of course, is No. Yet here we have God's request of Abraham, a request which was a test, like we discussed. And we know that. Uh, omniscient narrator. We know it's a test. Who doesn't know it's a test? Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He just knows it's a command, a command that he must obey. Knowing the story, we know God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. From the author's perspective, this test was not contrary to God's character. That's important. But in Abraham's mind, it might have been. Abraham's mind, what, what is happening here? How far will this test go? Well, let's find out. Abraham, verse 3, arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So he, Abraham, he's an early riser. Uh, I don't know how late he liked to stay up, but he just gets things done the next day. It's like the second or third time where Abraham rose up early to get the work done. And he makes all the necessary preparations. He picks servants or young men to accompany them. He gets a donkey to carry their supplies. Uh, and there's firewood that Abraham himself cut. Now, uh, I remember stories of Jeremy having to cut firewood throughout his whole childhood. He doesn't really enjoy it uh, very much that way. Probably makes Titus do it at this point. I don't know. Uh, but I enjoy splitting firewood because nobody's telling me to do, <laughs> to do it. Uh, but it makes me feel manly, right? Take that wedge and split the wood. I can feel good. I want to make sure Leanne or the girls are watching. It's kind of like, hey, I'm going to go outside, chop firewood. You know, you could watch if you want. <laughs> and partly I enjoy it because I look forward to the warm fires that my family and I will enjoy, right? There's no, there, uh, we had, I cut a lot this week, burned almost all the wood that we have. Keeping the house warm is beautiful. There was no pleasure in the chore for Abraham that morning. But he cut the wood for the burnt offering himself. Each stroke of the axe, he must have remembered what would be consumed along with the firewood. How could he not? What would be burned up? The corpse of his dead son. The text doesn't focus on that. It just tells us Abraham got everything ready. When everything is prepared, they leave. They travel for three days. That's a lot of time for Abraham to think. I can't drive from here to Charleston without getting lost in my thoughts. And he's walking mile after mile after mile. Perhaps a lot of conversations with Isaac where his mind must have been distracted as they walked. Sometimes uh, Adele likes to, well, different girls, but I know Adele specifically knows we're going to Home Depot or we're going to Menards. She's like, well, how much are you going to be thinking? <laughs> are you there to just pick up something that you know or do you have to plan? Because she wants to talk and I need to think and it doesn't always coordinate. So I'm like, well, I've got a lot of thinking. She's like, you go by yourself. <laughs> she's right, though. It's, it's awful. Like, I'm just, she's just trying to it's like spend time with dad, and I'm just like, I'm trying to envision building something. A lot of conversations with Isaac where his mind must have been distracted as they walked. Two long nights staring at the campfire or just up at the stars. You know, the stars that he couldn't count if he tried, just like the number of promised offspring that would come through Isaac. 
text doesn't focus on Abraham's thoughts. It just tells us that they traveled. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So finally, on the third day, they see this place where God has sent him. And his wording to his servants is interesting, isn't it? Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go and worship and come again to you. And there's something important in that response. Something that the author of Hebrews points out for us. Scripture didn't tell me where to look. I'd always miss things. But Jesus and the other the authors of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, be like, don't miss this. Hebrews eleven nineteen points this out. Abraham didn't say, I'll go and I'll come back. He says, we'll go and we'll come back. It's in both of them. And so what the author of Hebrews draws out in this, Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. He wasn't lying to the servants. He wasn't trying to deceive them. He just had confidence and faith that God was going to do something. They didn't know what. We see Abraham obeying. We see Abraham trusting. Trusting God to solve all of the unsolvable problems in order to keep his promises. It's a a great definition of, of his faith here, isn't it? God is being trusted Abraham trusts God to solve all of the unsolvable problems in order to keep his promises. That's amazing. But the story isn't done yet. The obedience still isn't complete. In verse 7, just one of the worst, reads like a knife in Abraham's heart. Can there be anything worse than delivering bad news to your children? I've had that experience. Perhaps it may be knowing something terrible and not being able to tell them. Yet Abraham's answer, so what does Isaac say? Well, he took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. So verse 6, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. They went both of them together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, well, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Aren't we missing something? Abraham, his answer, verse 8, it rings with faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Oh, okay. So they went on together. Abraham's response was described when I read it this week as combining complete certainty about God with complete openness as to detail. It's not bad, is it? God's going to do it. What's he going to do? Don't know. How's he going to do it? Don't know. When are we going to find out? Not sure. It's just like God will blank, but he will. There's Abraham's faith. Apparently, it's something like, I don't know what God's going to do, but, he's, but I know he's going to do something. You ever, you've been there? Sometimes it's like, well, the only option is God doing something. Uh, interestingly, like sometimes we admit that, like we've exhausted all options. So well, either God's going to do something or nothing's going to happen. Well, actually, 10 attempts ago, it was still true. <laughs> either God does it or nothing happens. God will see to it that there's a sacrifice. That's another way we could translate that. God will see to that. You have have an issue, you have a problem, you have a, uh, a question, something's missing, something needs to be done, and it's just like, well, God will see to that. He's taking care of it. That's his responsibility. Kind of like, this problem is his problem. Not a casting cares upon him. You can worry and accomplish nothing and be sick to your stomach. Or you can, all right, Lord, this is yours. I think that's what Abraham's doing here. Abraham seems to assume that though God seems absurd, he will prove consistent. Though he is baffling, he is nevertheless trustworthy. Though he is mysterious, he is righteous. 
do you and I think we fully know God and His ways? Sometimes, right? As we've grown and we've seen God do things, we're like, oh, He'll, he'll do it this way. Oh, maybe He'll do it that way. Maybe He won't do it that way. Oh, He'll come through at this hour. Maybe He won't come through at that hour. Maybe it'll be way earlier. Maybe it'll be way later. Well, it has to happen according to this path. It has to follow these things. I know how God works. Do you? Do you fully understand God and His ways? Does He only do expected things? Does God only act the way that we say He should? No. Does He never surprise or astound us as His will unfolds? You were going to do something. I had no idea you were going to do that. That didn't seem like an option. Wasn't even on the list. Job argues back and forth with his friends. Remember Job, right? And he maintains innocence and they maintain guilt and they argue back and forth, chapter after chapter. Neither of them budging, none of the four of them budging throughout these chapters. And at one point, Job points to God's power over life and over death and over all of creation. Maybe that's like a foretaste. That's what God brings him back to later. But before God speaks, Job is still pointing to these things. He has power over life. He has power over death. He has power over creation. He does whatever he wants. And then Job says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. Everything that you know about God, just a whisper of his ways. Just just the, the outer edges of what he has done and is doing and will do. We need to put our hands over our mouths when we have God figured out. I have to admit, I love dragging out stories. I love it. I love delaying the punchline. I've got these two great jokes I probably told half of you. I'm not going to do it now. Uh, but I could take a 15-second joke and make it five minutes or longer. It's the best. Uh, sometimes Leanne will help me with a story, help me with a story by finishing it for me. It just totally ruins it. I just want attention. I want to let the anticipation build. Can't go too fast through this. It's kind of what verses 9 and 10 do. They include a lot of detail, and they slow the narrative down. It's almost like that. You can kind of like hear the heartbeat, right? Slow motion through this, focusing on everything that is happening. Do we see it's verse 9? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. It's a lot of detail. They arrive at the place. Abraham gathers stones to build whatever this altar is going to look like. He takes the wood that Isaac had carried piece by piece, lays it in order. Then he binds his son. We don't know how I imagine like this. His hands behind his back, maybe his feet together. Did he blindfold him? Did he gag him? It doesn't say. And then Abraham lays Isaac on the altar. I'm guessing face down on top of the wood so that when Abraham slits his throat to kill him, the blood will drain down and away just like you would do for a sheep or a cow. Without stopping, without flinching, Abraham pulls the knife from his belt and moves it toward Isaac's throat. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. The Lord tests his people. The Lord tests his people. The Lord planted the forbidden tree in the garden to test Adam and Eve's loving obedience to him. They failed that test. The Lord brought Job to Satan's attention and permitted the death of his children and the near destruction of his body to test Job's faithful righteousness. The Lord was very precise in how he provided food and water for the Israelites wandering through the wilderness to test their trust and obedience. We could spend all day looking at examples of this. And it's true to this day. It's not the Lord used to test his people. The Lord tests his people. Our heavenly father tests us. James 1, 2 through 4, familiar passage, I'm sure it reminds us of this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials or tests of various kinds. 
For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God will send the heat. It will reveal the impurities. Then they can get scraped off as you move toward maturity. God tests his people. Our heavenly father tests us. God places us in difficult and unavoidable situations, both big and small, that force us to ask and answer the most important questions. Do we love God? Do we trust God? Will we obey God? And there's another word that the Bible uses to combine all of those elements together, love and trust and obedience, and it, it encapsulates it all in one word. Do you know what the, what the word is? Fear. Do we fear God? Gerald gave me a helpful book this week, Providential Time. Gerald believes in God's providence, and that book was providentially given, brother. Helpful little book this week called, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? And when he gave it to me, I was like, that's nice. Just kind of sat on the side of my desk. And then as I came to this text, I'm like, oh no, that's, that's now. <laughs> that's not later. It's like 60 pages. I was able to read it in one day. Praise the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord by a man named Michael Reeves? And the timing was perfect. It helped me to prepare for this sermon. Thank you, brother. In it, in this book, he starts off by describing a sinful fear that drives people away from God. That's probably kind of the first thing that we would think of. When we are afraid of something, it's like run away from it. It's a danger to us. Is God a, God a danger to people? Yes. Right? That's the fear. A sinful fear driving people away from God is the dread of guilty sinners before their holy judge. God is an enemy to sinners who remain unrepentant before him. And that dread, that fear uh, may be appropriate, but it isn't pleasant. And even in that fear, there's no remorse along with that dread of a judge. There's only regret at being caught. <laughs> that we, we lawbreakers, we, we hate the law. We hate the punishment. We hate the judge. We hate the lawgiver. If we had the chance, we would take a flying leap at the judge to attack and destroy. Did you see that? What, California, I think? I don't remember where that guy was. He didn't like the law. He didn't like the judge. So he just ran and took a dive at this judge. That's what we would do to God if we had the chance. That's the result of what this fear does. If you have trusted Christ, you have no need of this kind of fear. There is no dread for you because there is no condemnation for you. Christ took that punishment, so I can't say it better than the hymn writer. When Satan tempts me to despair or to fear and dread God as judge, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you're a Christian, you have no need to fear God as judge. There's no condemnation waiting for you. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But having been delivered from that hateful, dread-like fear of God, we are still told to fear the Lord repeatedly. Another type of fear is the awe and wonder of creatures before their tremendous creator. What must God be like if he creates volcanoes and earthquakes, thunder and lightnings and snowfalls, planets and plants, whales and wasps, fiery stars and fireflies, and us as well. He designed and created us. He sustains our lives, gives us life and breath and everything else. The heavens declare the glory of God, so we rightly reply, well, what is man? that you are mindful of us. Who are we? And that's a good and right fear of God, but it just sort of observes him at a distance. You can be amazed at God from afar. 
You should be amazed at God, but it shouldn't be from afar. That awe of a creator and his power and brilliance, it's not the fear of the Lord that we're called to. There's also a right fear that doesn't, doesn't lean away from God and doesn't just observe God from a distance, but a fear that leans toward God. It doesn't even lean toward God, runs toward God, jumps toward God, must be in God's presence. It's a fear that's described in terms of love and joy. And there's this partnership between fear and love, the fear of God and the love of God. Fear of God is, and I don't remember where the passage was, but it's like, ah, oh, it's my delight to fear you. There's joy in the fear of the Lord. Is there, is there joy in the fearing God as judge? No, and is, is there really joy in fear of God as creator? I don't think so. But there's this other fear that's mixed and mingled perfectly with love for God and joy found in God. And Reeves says this is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. There was a lot to that. I'll just go ahead and read that again because it's somebody else's quote. This right fear, it's an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. This is the joyful, loving fear of the Lord, not as our judge or even as our creator, but as our, what do you think? As our, Keith, you know, as our father. As our Father, it is the overwhelmed devotion of children marveling at the kindness and glory and complete magnificence of their Father. Of whose Father? Their Father. Whose Father? Our Father. My girls love me, and I love them. But that, that little boy over there uh, is extraordinary, uh, delusionally extraordinary, but extraordinary because although they've all been fans of me, maybe they still are, they'll say yes because they know I'm sensitive, but James just can't be apart from me. Like, I don't, this is kind of like, well, I, buddy, I know me. I don't deserve that. That his just devotion, and it's just like, oh, the other day, this was terrible. Was it, this is this week. Leanne was trying to catechize the kids, James and Lily. Who made everything, right? God made everything. Simple, right? Who made the stars? God made the stars. <laughs> don't hold him to this. And he said, No. Daddy made the stars. I was like, no, no, we've gone too far. We've gone too far. I sink in water, right? I don't walk on it. I didn't make anything. But it's just like, he doesn't want to walk without me. I can do no wrong. And it's just like, I need to, I need to love God like that. Like a word, a word of disapproval, right? It's just kind of like, oh, it's just that devastation. It's just like, it's like, oh, wow. Like, he, like he's teaching me the fear of the Lord. Because we don't really want that type of relationship with God, I think. I think we want to walk on our own. Uh, we want to be equipped, and then we want to move on. Right? It's kind of like, I love for my dad, and then 18, it was like time to move out and move on. There's no moving out and moving on from God, our Father. Like, we remain in dependence on Him. We remain walking. We, we maintain that fear of the Lord. There's never a sense in which we become uh, peers with God or, or friends in that sense. Like, friend of God is not, it's like we still are children. And it's just everything that a father is supposed to be. And it is that type of a devotion, a marveling. It's like, my dad is better than your dad, did, richer than your dad, whatever. 
And it's like, well, our Heavenly Father is, and infinitely so. So do you fear your Heavenly Father? Again, not cowering away. That's not what it's talking about. So what do I mean by that? Are you overwhelmed in your love for him? Are you quick to trust him? After all, he's your dad. He's your father. Are you eager to obey him and repulsed by the thought of disobeying? And if you're a Christian, then the spirit who dwells in you cries out yes to these questions. You're like, yeah, absolutely. Sunday morning at 1152, my heart is 100% toward God. And then... We're also honest, like as far too often, we're yes and we're no. We know that in our lives, we often do not live in the fear of God. We are underwhelmed in our love for him, not overwhelmed in our love for him. Often we are slow to trust and we're sluggish to obey. That's probably putting it mildly. And that's where tests and trials come in. They come in to reveal where we do fear God, loving Him, trusting Him, obeying Him, and where we don't fear God. Trials and tests, they don't create this lack of fear of God. They just merely reveal it. They they bring this to the surface of our lives like weeds popping up in a garden. You don't water a garden and weeds come with the water. The weeds are already there. The sunlight and water just cause them to grow up so that the gardener can deal with them. That's what trials and tests do. See, whatever areas of life we don't fear God, we love and fear something else. You're not going to live fearless. You're not going to live worshipless. You don't live loveless, trustless. It's just what are you going to trust? What are you going to love? What are you going to obey? Who are you going to obey? Who are you going to fear? And what do we call something that we place in, in front of God? What do we call that? An idol. As a wedding present, my sister Jennifer made Leanne and I a beautiful cross stitch with the names of God found in Scripture, spelled out, beautifully framed. It's always had a place of prominence in our home. Our first house here in West Virginia was a rental. We didn't want to put stuff into the wall because then we'd have to patch it up or pay for it to be patched up. So we just set it on a mantle place, uh, on the mantle, like in our dining room so we could see it. Uh, At the time, I worked at Starbucks in the mall, and when you're an employee of Starbucks, you get a coffee markout, free pound of coffee every week. Wonderful. Missed that. That was far more coffee than we could drink on our own, so we just had extra bags of coffee, and we just had them on display so we could give out to other people. Maybe some of you in those days, if you were friends, you got coffee. If not, I'm sorry. But we had the bags of coffee. They were stacked on our mantle so our friends could see, see the coffee when they came over. Oh, I love Komodo Dragon. Have some Komodo Dragon. I love Sumatra. Have some Sumatra. Uh, on one visit, my really good friend, Denny, uh, decided to confront me about my idolatry. Because uh, apparently I loved so- coffee so much that I was willing to put it in the, on the mantle in front of the names of God. <laughs> and he was joking, of course, but I moved the coffee anyway. Don't mess around with idolatry. But fearing the Lord requires forsaking idols. Tear it down. Fearing the Lord requires the forsaking of idols. Ripping down and destroying, just getting it out of the way. Whatever holds an equal or higher place than God in our hearts. Nothing can be in front of him. Nothing can be on the same plane. It can't even be close. Whatever may cause us to doubt him or hinder our eager obedience to his commands, it just must be removed. And the most difficult of these idols to recognize are often related to how we view God's gifts. Chris talked about that a few weeks ago. Love the giver, not the gift. Love the the, the giver in enjoying the gift, but our hearts love the giver for the gifts, which means we really... Love the gifts, not the giver. So think about Abraham. His dearly loved son Isaac was God's gracious gift to him, the fulfillment of God's promise. How could Abraham love the fulfillment of God's gracious promise too much? But it would have been too much if it stood in the way of continued trust and stood in the way of obedience. Perhaps God has given you someone or something in order order. Two, take that gift away 
as a test of your trust and love and loyalty to him. And you say, it's like, God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. You know God's ways so much. There are things in your life that are off limits from him removing from you. There's something that can hold a place equal to him. It's not true. Well, God would never. Careful. Be careful. What does it say if you aren't willing to sacrifice something in your love for God? If you're not willing to sacrifice something for your loving father. I'll follow God unless, as long as he doesn't, as long as he gives me this relationship or as long as doesn't take this away, as long as I get the spouse, as long as we have kids, as long as my kids are healthy, as long as I maintain my job, God owes me these things, so quid pro quo. You give and I'll give. Nope. That's idolatry. God, greater than everything in your heart and in your mind, God, greater than everything, that's the fear of the Lord. But anything greater than or equal to God is a sinful idolatry. It feels impossible, doesn't it? Like, think about the things that you, that you love, that, that you fear losing, missing out on, to, um, to think about those things being kind of wrenched from our grasp. Seems like the worst. This seems like hell on earth. Seems like the worst thing that could possibly happen. Seems like it couldn't be in line with the character of God for that to happen. Feels impossible to move forward in those days. But, but you're, you're not alone in completing these impossible tasks, in walking in the fear of the Lord like this. You're not alone. And I don't mean you're not alone as in like other people go through it too. I mean that God has not left you by yourself to fear him like this. With the the spirit of Christ dwelling in you, nothing is impossible. Like without Christ, it is impossible to fear the Lord at all. But with the spirit of Christ It is impossible. It's the work that he's accomplishing in you. So one author said this, uh, Augustine, a long time ago, really made Pelagius super mad. Grant what you command and command what you will. Grant what you command, command what you will. What do you mean by that? I think he meant that the same God who tests us and tries us also strengthens us to endure those trials. He doesn't send it and then leave. It's not what a father would do. It's a father who walks with us through trials and tests. The same God who may require you to give up all that you love the most does so in order that your heart may be filled to overflowing with love for him. It's removing obstacles to your relationship with him. After all, Remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the fear of the Lord. Trusting our Father when we don't understand his plan obeying our Father when His commands seem impossible, and loving our Father with everything that we have. That is the fear of the Lord, fear of God who is our Father. That was a hard word that Jesus said, wasn't it? Hating all those things, renouncing all that you have. But let me remind you that Jesus practiced what He preached. No one lived in the fear of the Lord like Jesus did. It was his delight to fear the Lord and to have that relationship with his Father. He trusted every word of his Heavenly Father so much that it was like food and drink for him. He loved his Heavenly Father with all his heart and soul and mind and strength all the time. And he obeyed every command of his Heavenly Father, delighting to do his Father's will. And when this was difficult... When Jesus' own will, when his desires were different than his Father's will, what was his prayer? 
Father, not my will, but yours be done. This was true submission, full love, willing obedience, and living in the fear of the Lord all the way to his own death as a sacrifice. And it is that perfect God-fearing righteousness that God gives as a gift to all those who trust in Jesus. Not righteous by your own efforts at the fear of the Lord. You're righteous through faith in his fear of the Lord, offered for you and given to your account. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that you? Do you trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection for your salvation, or are you trusting yourself to please God on your own? And Christian, dearly, individually loved son or daughter of God, do you love your heavenly Father? He loves you. Do you love him? Do you trust him to be faithful to keep his promises to you every moment of your life? Are you eager to show that love and trust in your obedience to him? That's our relationship with our Father. Prayer to close. I just want to read Psalm, portion of Psalm 86. Let's pray. God, our Father, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me, teach us your way. O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts. Give us undivided hearts to fear your name. We give thanks to you, O Lord, our God, with our whole heart. We will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward us. You have delivered our souls from the depths of Sheol. Amen.